You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mamushka, mamushka, and hey, and a 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 hey, Alan, pop quiz, what's that from? Fiddler on the Russian land no you're wrong it's from the adams family movie today's a very exciting episode i think i actually think and no offense to any other episode like my episodes are gonna be like offended and hate tweet me um (laughs) (laughs) that would be a nice change that would be a nice change um but barry sonnenfeld has created all the movies that we love and cherish um, I mean, he's worked on some of my favorites, like from Misery to Adam's Family, Adam's Family Values. He basically cast Tom Hanks as Forrest Gump. Is that yes. not remarkable? The, the the amount of influence that this single person has had on our generation and it is just phenomenal. I I cannot believe how I guess how accessible he is to us when when you're talking, but yeah. also how open he is, how honest about he about how how much his past has hurt him and influenced him. Mm-hmm. But he's just like, here's who I am. Take it or leave it. And here's this great legacy that I have yeah. left behind me. It's incredible. Um, he wrote he wrote an amazing book um, called Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. Um, it's I've read it twice now. Like it's just so hilarious also heartbreaking and as a bit of a trigger warning there is mention you know there there is discussion about um sexual abuse um emotional abuse like you sort of name it the this fella has been through it all um but it's his brilliant sense of humor and um i don't know just his brilliant self that it gives me hope that other people that face these kinds of terrible things can really come out on top and um, 
and make the most of their life in the best possible way. Um, so I'm so excited. I, oh God, I can't wait to share this with you. Okay, enough talking. Enough talking. Join the Patreon, but enough talking. And Alan, baby, boo boo, roll the music. Josh Swallows, Josh Swallows, Josh Swallows. Hey everybody, welcome back to Josh Swallows Broadway. Um, I am so damn excited. Uh, I just finished reading this incredible book called Call Your Mother, written by the legendary Barry Sonnenfeld. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Um, to tell a little bit about yourself to our viewers, um, Okay, so he directed the Men in Black movies, Pushing Daisy, Get Shorty, one of my favorites. Of course, Schmigadoon, which all of you theater freaks love. Um, a series of unfortunate events, and of course, my all-time favorite, The Addams Family, specifically The Addams Family Values with the darling of all darlings, Joan Cusack. Welcome to the show, Barry. It's so good to have you. Well, thank you so much. I just want to correct one tiny little thing. The name of the book is actually called Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, as opposed to Call Your Mother. And it's based <laughs> on a specific story that ha- right. it's it's based on an actual event in my life, which we could talk about if you want to. Please, get, it's yeah. hilarious and so embarrassing. It's incredibly embarrassing. We're talking about 1970. So we're pre-cell phones, pre-pagers. you know pagers. It's 2.20 in the morning. I'm a senior at the High School of Music and Art. I was a French horn player. I was with my girlfriend at the time. First uh, peace concert, Madison Square Garden, 19,600 people. Jimi Hendrix is warming up for the second time because earlier in the evening, he just didn't feel the vibe and left. So everyone's really tense. As I say, 2.20 in the morning. <laughs> He's warming up and literally true story over the PA system comes the following announcement, Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother. (laughs) Well, can it get worse than that? So of course you immediately, or I immediately go to one place, which is my father died. How else, what other emergency could get someone to get through enough layers to convince enough people to have me paged? as Jimi Hendrix is warming up. So now, (laughs) first of all, I leap up. So everyone in my section of blue seats at the garden starts a chant of Barry, (laughs) Barry. And you know, it's cascading towards Jimmy. I'm weeping uncontrollably because I assume my father is dead. Put the dime into the, you know, payphone in the back by the hot dog stand, call my mother. I'm weeping. She's weeping. Mom, who died? Who died? I thought you died. Why would you think I died? You said you'd be home by two. It's 2.20. <laughs> Say, Mom, did they tell you the concert was still going on? They, they did tell me that, but they couldn't prove that you were there. So she literally had me paged. Oh, my God. That's True so story. crazy. Um, and the stuff in in the book about your parents is, you know, equally 
insane. Um, you went through a lot. I mean, obviously, your mother was very overprotective and also a bit of a pathological liar. Um, and you mentioned, you know, your father sort of, you know, being similar as far as, you know, narcissism goes. Um, and also, you know, your book also goes into some really upsetting things, but you frame it so hilariously, you know, about uh, being a survivor of sexual abuse. Right. Um, both of both my parents were incredibly narcissistic. They just were different versions of narcissists, but they they were really at the head of their class in, in both male and female versions. And um, for a while, my cousin Mike, CM the CM, cousin Mike the child molester, was <laughs> living at our apartment building in Washington Heights because he had been fired by WMCA Radio, The Good Guys. That was the name of their sort of thing. And he was living on our couch for two years. And during that time, he molested me, my the kids in my apartment building, my cousins, you know, at high holidays and that kind of stuff. And eventually, um, decades later, I my neighbor, who was a writer, wrote this piece for Slate magazine about being molested as a child. And I found his email address and I emailed him and I said, CM the CM? And he said, yes. And I went and uh, met with my friend and we had breakfast together and his life was ruined by this. Oh. I, I got through it. You know, part of it is I write it in a kind of funny way. And then near the end of the book, I get serious about it and describe a specific event. But in any case, after I had breakfast with my friend, I went up to my dad's apartment, who was probably 93 at the time, still very full of himself, very healthy. And I, I said, Dad, did you hate mom so much that you allowed a child molester to live with us just so that mom would have someone to hang out with? Because uh, mom never got a driver's license because that was the only way she could get people to pay attention to her. They'd have to drive her places, usually the Paramus Park Mall in New Jersey, <laughs> um, where there was both a La Crepe and a Magic Pan, which was unusual to have two creperies in one <laughs> mall. Uh, and uh, and that said, I said, so did you hate mom that much? And dad said, well, here there are three things. First of all, child molestation didn't have the same same stigma back then that it has now. So that's an instant tilt game over, you know, pack up your bags. Then he said, you know, your mother was so upset because of all the affairs I were was having. I thought having Mike around would cheer her up. And third of all, I never thought Mike was molesting you. I only thought he was playing with your penis. <laughs> So now, you know, you're hearing your ears ringing and you're trying to form a sentence. So I said, and that was okay with you? And he said, well, I play with my penis. It feels good. Don't you play with yours? And I said, but dad, no one is forcing themselves on your penis. Yeah, that's, that's a, a choice. That's a choice, right? That's a specific choice. Dad said, well, you know, I never thought of it that way. And I said, okay, dad, I'm, I'm leaving. And that was one of the last times I ever saw my, it was just too yeah. disturbing because you keep hoping, you kind of know they know, but you're, you keep hoping 
surely my parents didn't know because how could they, I mean, if I found out someone was molesting any of my children, you know, I wouldn't ignore that. That's for sure. Yeah. No. Well, one thing that I love about your book, and I think uh, we have this in common when you go through a lot of like tragic shit and hard shit, um, sometimes you develop a really fantastic, wicked sense of humor that um, I've always been a big believer that like laughter is one of the most important things that we have because the world is constantly a flaming pile of shit. So you might as well be able to laugh along the way. Yeah, you know, I think it. in my case, it has given me a quirky sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Everything I do, whether it's Adam's Family or Men in Black or a series of unfortunate events or even Pushing Daisies has a quirky off-center nature to it. And yeah. it's it's just something I'm I'm attracted to. You know, um, I will tell you that uh, my parents were investors in Broadway musicals. And maybe the reason <laughs> maybe the reason I don't like them so much. Um, and I know that in part I'm here to talk about Schmigadoon, but um, you know, they wouldn't we rarely had electricity. We rarely were weren't behind in our rent. We often had to avoid Lou the butcher because we owed him too much money. (laughs) But yeah, whenever dad came into any money, he would put into Broadway musicals like Bravo Giovanni, probably a (laughs) musical you've never heard of, or Pearly Victorious, not Pearly, which was many years later, a successful musical, Pearly Victorious, the four hour non-musical version of the same story. Jesus, it's like we finally have some money. I know. I found a property called Whoopi Charlie Whoopi. Exactly. We're going to put it all into that. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, and speaking of Schmigadoon, because like what I really want to talk about is your book. Like I fell in love with your book. You and I also have something similar where, granted, I love listening to musicals and musicals have always been my bread and butter. But the older that I get, the more I just want to watch a play. If that makes sense, like I just don't really get sucked into the story as much, but I feel like your dislike for musicals made one of the perfect musical TV shows ever made. Um, like how much of your hatred of musicals went into Schmigadoon? Well, I would say that I was. Every day, turning to Cinco Paul, who created the show, uh, invented it, wrote all the lyrics and all the music for it. Almost every day we would line up for another musical number and I would say, do we really need this one? (laughs) No, I was saying it as a joke. Of course, we needed this one. But one of the things I really try to do as a director, and I've always directed comedies, is you still, I like the comedy to come out of the absurdity of the reality of a situation. You don't want Mm -hmm. actors to act funny. You want them to be real. And if the scene is absurd or funny, then it will be funny. The problem for me with musicals is I'm not sure why people are stopping and bursting into song. (laughs) So that's where I always had a problem with watching musicals. And I I watched a lot for this show, you know, and I, every day I'd come back to Cinco in pre-production and go, well, 
Watch Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, hated it. Watch Carousel, <laughs> don't get it. Singing in the Rain, I liked only because of the Donald O'Connor number, you know, yeah, uh, Make Them Laugh, which is brilliant. My three favorite musicals are really film musicals. They're very off-center in that they're almost not like musicals, like Pennies from Heaven, uh-huh. the Steve Martin movie. Yeah, Hair, I love, directed by Milos Forman. And Monty Python's Meaning of Life, which isn't really a musical, but has a lot of musical numbers in it. But I I just don't get why people stop and burst into song. Maybe it's I don't have the voice for it. Yeah, I mean, I like the fucked up ones like Sweeney Todd, you know, the really, really, really dark ones. Uh, But I'm the same. And like when they all did that corn pudding number, you know, it's like one of those things where you're in the audience and you're like, could I take my playbill and successfully cut my wrists with it. Right, right. You know, um, which is hilarious. But back to the book, it's not all, you know, it's not all dark. I don't want people to think that. Uh, There's so many funny, you know, moments. For one, your bar mitzvah in the Catholic Church. Sure. I'm obsessed with, I'm obsessed with the Joe Rabinowitz story. (laughs) Well, that's a good memory. So, yeah, um... It's it's typical of my life that I would end up being bombed for the inner church. In <laughs> fact, uh, the night before my bombed for the rabbi and cantor, you know, the guy who plays his chauffeur, uh, went to the church with a bunch with ladders and burlap bags to hide the crucifixes <laughs> and the Jesus, you know, blood coming out of his wrist stuff. Um, what had happened was we were a member of the the conservative branch of our tribe, which was a uh, temple Beth Beth. What what was the name of my my temple? Beth Shalom. Beth Shalom. Temple Beth Shalom, and they sold their temple to an Orthodox group a week before the new temple that they had built was ready to be opened. So so there was no temple for a week. The Orthodox wouldn't let a conservative Jew be bar mitzvahed in <laughs> absolutely there. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What a That's shanda. A shanda on the neighbors. So instead, uh, the rabbi went to my local church and they said, yeah, sure, we don't care. So <laughs> they were less problematic. They they had less of a problem with me. No, they were the excited. Yeah, I'm they were like, sure they Jesus were. was a Jew. Come on yeah, in. Yeah, no. We yeah, don't yeah. blame you for anything. Come on in. <laughs> so, yes, I was bombed in in a uh, church. Um, can you can you tell a little bit about the the Mr. Rabinowitz story? Oh, being... sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a bombed is also Saturday services. So, uh-huh. you know, uh, and so other people read from the 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 Torah and uh, there are certain people that get called up. My parents had their best friend, Joe Rabinowitz, be called up to read. And, and the rabbi said, uh, and to read the next portion will be Joe Rabinowitz. And Joe went, no. <laughs> and the rabbi says, you can't say no. And Joe says, uh, no, thank you. He says, that's not my point. <laughs> and so they're getting into an argument. In the middle of my bummets, or Joe's seated, you know, about 18 rows back, the rabbi's in the front. This becomes a real issue. The rabbi leaves the podium and has this sort of uh, discussion with Joe. And 
eventually the compromise is that Joe can read it phonetically. They have a phonetic way to read, you know, those words in Hebrew. So Joe finally agreed. But the 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 services stopped for what, 12 minutes <laughs> while Joe and the rabbi are having a discussion about it being an honor or not being an honor to be called up to not know how to read Hebrew <laughs> in front of 150 people. When Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, becomes a Broadway musical, I better get a damn audition for Joe Rabinowitz. Just for the side. No. No, thank <laughs> now, you. Now. And the weird thing is I want Chenoweth to play my mother, and Chenoweth weighs about 300 pounds less and is about <laughs> a foot shorter and actually looks like a female. So it's going to be a real problem, but we'll figure that out. I always said, I said this on the Letterman show, in fact, I said, until he died, my mother could have been Vincent Gardenia's stand photo double. Uh, she uh, she was a combination of Vincent Gardenia and Roger Ebert. I would say. <laughs> That's so funny. I've had some pretty crazy synagogue stories myself. Like when my grandmother died, we had the the service on Friday night where the rabbi says the name of all the dead congregation members and. Um, my last name is Layman. Her name's Patty. And so he gets to her name and he goes, Patty Lum, <laughs> Patty, Patty Laman, Patty, hmm, Pat. And then finally the cantor went, Layman. It was like, <laughs> Patty Layman, Patty, <laughs> Patty Layman. Just, and a, some woman brought hummus cookies to the fucking Shiva. It was a nightmare. That is a nightmare. Um, um, but you and I also have something fantastic in common i think um there before you became the uh you know the the man that we all know and love you had a period of your life where you did nine porns how is that similar to you i'll tell you um when i left college i got fired from starbucks um i was one of those people that was sort of like if you're nice to me your coffee's free just be nice <laughs> um and also they tip more when it's free and then i found an ad in the paper looking for phone actors and i was like phone actors okay and so i called and they were like well you'd have to be a woman on the phone and I was like, I have a lady voice. This is perfect for me. And so for about four months, I was Fiona. And uh, every day from 10 to 6, it'd be, hi, this is Fiona. Who's this? And so I got really excited that <laughs> we both had that world in common, except your porn career led you to meet the Cohen brothers, and my phone sex career <laughs> led me to a regional production of Jekyll and Hyde. So <laughs> there is a clear difference. Um but thank God for porn, because then you met the Cohen brothers. In 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 a, in a sense, uh, when I graduated graduate film school, NYU graduate film school, this is before video. There was mm -hmm. only thirty five millimeter, and then newsreel cameras, which were sixteen millimeter cameras. And at graduate film school, I, I sort of discovered I had this ability to light and be a good cameraman. I thought maybe that would be my career. So. I bought a used 16 millimeter camera. My thinking being if I owned a camera, I could call myself a cameraman without being a dilettante about it because I actually owned a camera. Mm -hmm. And the first, I bought it with a buddy of mine. We bought a used CP 16 millimeter reflex. And uh, the first job, which he found, 
was getting us to shoot nine feature length pornos in nine days, <laughs> produced and directed by Dick Miller of Mr. Mustard Productions. <laughs> and um, and I'll tell you, it was so disgusting that after the nine days of shooting, it took me six months to get an erection again. It was just so horrible and disgusting. But owning that 16 millimeter camera, a couple of months later, I was at a Christmas party where there were only wasps. There were only two Jews at the party. Me and this tall guy that looked a little bit like Howard Stern on the other side of the room. And that was Joel Cohen. And the two Jews sort of smelt each other out somehow. And we ended up <laughs> hanging out together at the party. And he, he told me that he and his brother, Ethan, Ethan wasn't at the party. He and his brother, Ethan, had just written a script for this movie, Blood Simple. And they were going to shoot a trailer as if it were a finished film and use that trailer to show, you know, like dentist investment clubs and mm -hmm. doctor investment clubs and, you know, and try to raise the $750,000 with this trailer. And I said to Joel at the party, well, I own a camera. And he said, all right, you're hired. So <laughs> now they only hired me to shoot the, the trailer. But luckily, we loved working together. The trailer looked fantastic. And uh, a year later, we had raised the 750 grand. And, and I write about this in the book. The first time Joel, Ethan, or I had ever been on a movie set was the first day shooting the feature film Blood Simple. Joel had never worked his way up through assistant directing or, or writing other scripts. I had never been an assistant cameraman or a camera operator. In fact, the night before we started shooting Blood Simple, I had the camera assistant bring the camera over to show me where the on-off switch was because I had never seen the 35-millimeter camera before, because one of the things I write about in the book and one of the things, the few things my dad gave me was his philosophy that you should decide what you want to be in life and then become that thing. Hmm. Don't worry how you're going to earn a living. Don't worry what your career is, what will bring you happiness and you'll find a way to earn a living doing it. So, and, and along with that is don't work your way up. Don't spend five years doing X and then another five years becoming a camera operator and then another five years before you're a DP. So I just announced I was a director of photography and Joel announced he was a director and Ethan announced he was a producer. And we went off and made blood simple and got rave reviews at, from the New York times and yeah. at the New York film festival. So it was, it was a big deal. What was that like? I mean, I, I mean, did you expect that it was going to do well? We expected the opposite. The About six months earlier, we had an, a screening for all the investors. Two-thirds mm -hmm. of them walked out. They hated the movie so Shit. much. And in fact, Joel, Ethan, and I were at a diner at 66 in Broadway. And I, I said, you know, I think Blood Simple is playing at I think it's playing for the critics right now at the film festival. And Joel and Ethan said, no, don't make us go over there. We don't want to see that movie one more fucking time. I'm in there about plus critics. <laughs> yeah. Plus critics. And I said, come on, it'll be fun. So they agreed. We walked to the back and as we're walking down the hallway to that particular screening room, 
We heard laughter for the first time. We Joe thought we were at the wrong door, <laughs> but and it was the first screening we ever had where people got the joke of the movie and realized it was supposed to be funny and creepy and scary and not just a, a downer. So we were shocked. And that I remember you could get the times like at seven o'clock at this newsstand at 72nd and Broadway. And I went and got the times and there's Janet Maslin's review raving about the future that the Coen brothers are going to have. And the last couple of paragraphs are all about my cinematography. So we went from zero to a hundred. That's incredible. Well, I'm glad that you had that because you were also the DP of one of my favorite films, Misery, um, which I don't know. I applaud you and I thank you for that. I, I'm a huge fan of scary movies, and Kathy Bates is the best gift that this world has ever gotten. I I agree. In fact, by the way, I hate scary movies more than I hate musicals, which is saying (laughs) a lot. I've never seen The Exorcist or The Shining. Oh, they're so good. I saw one episode of The Twilight Zone, and that was one too much for me. Um, So uh, I never thought that Misery was actually uh, sort of like scary that way. But by the way, it was my idea to hire Kathy. And I knew Kathy through the Coen brothers. And I had seen her on Broadway in Night Mother. Mm -hmm. And Rob Reiner was thinking about hiring Bette Midler, who might have been really good. Who knows? And I said, you know what? You, You should really meet Kathy Bates. And so he met Kathy, fell in love with her. And she... She was an amazing actress on set. She she needed no, she kind of needed no direction. In fact, you know, she was so good. Whenever Rob would go to give her direction, she would just say, give me, give me the line reading. Give me the cock-a-doody line reading. And most, as you know, most actors are appalled by getting a line reading. But for Kathy, it was. We'll save a lot of time. That way you don't have to tell me about my backstory or what the scene before. Just give me the line reading. I'll make it my own anyway. Oh, I get it. You want me to be more petulant? Yeah, totally. You know, so she just short sh- shorthands everything by asking for a line reading, which is actually kind of brilliant. That's what I love, too. That's I, I love working with James Lapine because he's great at because he writes his own shit. So I'm like, James, just how do you want me to say it? Got it. Oh, I got see. it. OK, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, What was it like making that film? Was it fun? Was it miserable? Was it like it's just so fun to watch? OK, so um. The very first day of shooting Misery, and I had already shot when Harry met Sally for Rob. So mm-hmm. we were we were very close. We were good friends. Um, I had introduced him to his wife, Michelle Singer Reiner. And so I would eat lunch with him every day in the camper. And the, so the very first day of shooting was Jimmy Kahn having finished the last page of his novel. Uh every he has this tradition that he lights a cigarette and opens up a bottle of champagne. Well, three hours into this shot of Jimmy lighting a match, which he couldn't do. And he, Jimmy is like a four-year-old. He has way too much energy. And the problem with misery is you spend 90 pages lying in a bed, right? The opposite of Jimmy's whole gestalt. So after three hours of trying to light this match and being 
unable to, we broke for lunch and I, I went into Rob's trailer and I, I said to Rob, hey, Rob, remember Vietnam? My thinking being get out now, get fire him now. You don't want to be four weeks into the show and have to reshoot four weeks. Get rid of him right now. Rob said, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And near the end of the shoot, there was so much disdain for Jimmy, who's a lovely guy, by the way. He's lovely. Kathy is extraordinary. And Kathy makes Jimmy look better, actually. Hmm. Um, it's it's a whole theory of editing. If you if you cut to a baby and the shot before is a guy with a gun, the baby looks like it's frightened. If you cut to the baby, exactly the same shot, but it's a mom about to give the baby food, you can you think the baby is now smiling, even though it's exactly the same shot. So anyway, Kathy makes Jimmy look good because Kathy's so scary. You can cut to a dead man and think he's got, he's emoting. So anyway, near the end of shooting, I remember Jimmy's in bed and, and he's got to crawl out of bed and crawl to a certain spot on the floor. And Jimmy says, hey, Rob, how far should I crawl? And Rob says, bah, how, sure, how far should Jimmy crawl? And I literally, and I've never done this in my life and it was so mean, I literally went, Ugh. And I spit on the floor <laughs> and Rob literally said to Jimmy, crawl to the loogie, Jimmy, <laughs> instead of saying, Barry, you can't do that. Or So that's how much disdain we had for Jimmy. Lovely guy, but should just not have been hired to be the person laying in bed for 90 pages. Oh, God. So Jimmy crawled to the loogie and then we moved on to the next shot. That's hilarious. It's funny because I saw the the Broadway production with Laurie Metcalf. Uh, so odd that they chose to make it a play because in the movie, you're terrified for Paul. But in the theater, you're cheering on you're cheering on Laurie Metcalf and you're like, yeah, break his fucking foot. Do it, do it, do it. You know, it was yeah. uh, macabre. Yeah. It was brilliant. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some of my favorite chapters, especially the Adams family. Stay tuned. Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Wasn't that an exciting commercial break? I thought so. Okay, we're back with Barry Sonnenfeld with uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. Um, Adam's family, both of them, were so brilliant. And your book describes the atmosphere, the everything, so vividly and so well. And as a fan, it's so fun 
to hear these stories, especially that at your big reading with the cast, uh, the table read, that the that the actors weren't happy with the ending that was written. And they talked about it, and they formed, like, a, a cast spokesperson. And that spokesperson, I'll let you take it from here, was... Well, the spokesperson was either eight or nine-year-old uh, Christina Ricci, because she was uh, the most articulate of the group. And the problem that the cast had, we, Scott Rudin, Paul Rodnick, who was the uncredited writer of Adam's Family and was a credited writer of Adam's Family Values, and I thought it went well. But in our version, the end of the movie is Fester, who we we think is an imposter the whole movie mm-hmm. isn't and is indeed an imposter. And Gomez at the end says, you know what? Family is about attitude, not about genes. Welcome to the family. So even at the end, Fester is an imposter. Well, the cast was outraged. Gomez spends the whole movie pining for Fester. And now he's willing to embrace an, a fake and a fake Fester. It makes no sense. It's emotionally uh, disconcerting. And anyway, so Christina told us all the reasons why Fester had to be the real Fester. <laughs> and the only one who wasn't speaking up was Chris Lloyd, who is playing Fester Fester. in the show. He he was in a raw garlic phase of his life. That's so so weird to me. It can happen. Chris is a strange guy. So Chris is eating raw garlic. And I say, well, I say to everyone, well, Chris is playing the role. Chris, do you have a problem with it? And Chris goes, whatever you want, Bear. So I said, (laughs) hey, guys, if if if. Chris doesn't have a problem, isn't? And Angelica said, Christina? And Christina said, yes, we still have a problem. So <laughs> so we rewrote the entire ending based on the cast sort of uh, anger about it. I write, two, I think, two chapters about Adam's family without ever actually writing about the onset shooting. So in my next book, if there is one, I'm going to write about the experience of actually making the movie. Although I do talk about having to make all those kids cry. Uh, Which when is and, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, well, I was brilliant and I should be arrested for what I did. It, it, no, but you had to get to the hospital. I did have to get on a plane and get to the hospital back east because my wife was having surgery and I didn't think I'd get these five-year-olds to cry. Angelica has a job as a kindergarten teacher, Morticia does, and she's reading um, Hansel and Gretel uh, from the witch's point of view, you know? So it's 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 pro-witch, right? So by the end of the her reading, the kids are supposed to be so freaked out that they should be crying. But I knew I wouldn't get the kids to cry and it would l- look fake. I figured I could go out just on Angelica finishing the story and and she says, how do you think that would feel uh, sort of sympathetically? So I said, OK, we're good. And Rudin, Scott Rudin, who produced it, races, waves me frantically and of says, course. you don't you don't have this. I go, no, no, we're good. He goes, you don't have it. Those kids have to cry. I said, really, Scott, I'm going to make a, a room full of five year olds cry. How am I supposed to do that? Scott says, you're the director. Figure it out. But you got to get them to cry. And I go, OK, so I go to the. We had two cameramen that day so we could shoot the kids from multiple angles at the same time. So I said to both the camera, 
operators, all right, when they start to cry, just pan from one kid to another kid in close up, but stay on each kid long enough so I can use each kid as a separate cut. So don't make it a continuous pan. And one of the operators said, you're going to get those kids to cry. Good luck. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know. Thanks a lot. So I go to the kids and I say, kids, great job. We're done. And there was this one curly haired, blonde, blue eyed kid that really was supposed all the kids were blonde and blue eyed and they all were supposed to be like Nazi youth kind of right. You know, <laughs> sweet and adorable, like all Nazi youth are, I'm sure. And um, so this kid with the curly hair, I said, look, you're all great. The only thing we have to do now is you just have to get your vaccine. I was 30 years ahead of my time in vaccine. Yeah, you, uh, you have to get your vaccine. And the curly haired kid said, no, he's lying. No, I said, no, didn't your parents tell you? Oh, no, it's a thing. Whenever you're on a movie set, when you're done, you just have to get a shot. It really doesn't hurt that much. And that kid started to cry. And when that kid, who was like the brave one, the bravado kid who was talking down to the director, when he started to cry, all the kids started to cry. So that scene at near the end of the first Adams Family, those are real tears. Those are real kids crying. I got the shot, cold cut. And then one of the dads who saw what I did, who was in the next room, because, you know, you're required to have a video feed so the parents know that everything's okay, uh, came run, running after me saying, I am going to kill you, you MFR. And I'm racing and I get out the school door and I jump into the car and drive away to the airport, spend the night flying to New York get to New York just as my wife is coming out of surgery, find out she's okay. And I said, sweetie, you're okay? Sweetie said, yes. The doctor says, I'm fine. So I said, you feeling okay? She says, yeah, I feel pretty okay. I said, well, can you get out of bed and sit in the chair? Because I really need to lie down. <laughs> so I laid in the bed trying to get morphine from the nurse because of the horrible night I had had uh, directing those kids and then flying to New York on a red eye. One of my favorite moments of this book is when um, I guess you talked about uh, Gary Lucchesi, who was the president of production um, for Paramount, was it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're like hounding you, wanting to know, like, how's the movie going? What's it going to be like? Yada, yada, yada. Right. So what happened was uh, Scott Rudin convinced Orion, who is a production entity, to make this movie with me as a first-time director. And Orion was very friendly to first-time directors and a very friendly artistic studio. They were going bankrupt by the time we were halfway through. And the only thing they had to sell that was worth any money to keep them going and pay people was our movie. We were halfway done. Dee Dee Allen, one of the greatest editors in history, who was our editor, cut together a 10-minute show reel. We showed it to all the studios. The head of Paramount bought it Friday morning. At lunch, he was fired, not because of that, but just because he was fired. Mm -hmm. The new chairman, uh, Stan Jaffe, Stanley Jaffe came in, saw the same 10 minutes, hated it, declared that Adam's family was uncuttable and unreleasable. So now the whole second half of shooting we're filming for Orion, a studio whose chairman doesn't like the movie. So they're freaked out every day. 
Gary Lucchese and Bill Harburg would call Didi Allen and say, we saw the dailies. How is this going to cut together? And Didi would say, believe me, it cuts together fine. They were so nervous. So the, after the last day of shooting, Lucchese and Horberg take me to lunch at the Paramount Commissary. And, uh, you know, I go past the members of the Starship Enterprise because they're shooting a Star Trek movie there. And, <laughs> uh, and I sit down and they say, look, show us the movie. Uh, don't wait for your 10-week cut because as a director, you're guaranteed a 10-week Directors Guild of America cut where no one can see it, no one can interfere. It's your movie for 10 weeks. They're saying, don't wait the 10 weeks, show it to us now. I said, no, I have to. I got to get it in, in, you know, in viewing shape. I've got to do some opticals with thing, you know, the disembodied hand. I said, no, I'm not going to show it to you. And they kept hounding me, kept hounding me. I said, look, guys, I'm just, you're not going to see it for 10 weeks. But thanks for the Cobb salad. So I stand up to leave. And Lucchese says, look, if you won't show us a movie, will you at least tell us what it's like? And, I, and they've seen the dailies for the last 12 weeks, 15 weeks, however long it was. They, they have seen the dailies, right? And I said, well, I really shouldn't tell you this, but it's Adam's family is sort of like, a sadder version of Sophie's choice. And I leave. <laughs> and I, I, I stand up and I leave. But they've seen the dailies. They know there's no way you can cut Adam's down, you would think, into a sadder version of Sophie's choice. I'm going back to my room in the dresser room building and my phone is ringing. I get back into my office. I pick it up and it's Scott Rudin. He said, oh no, I told... Lucchese, it's a much sadder version of Sophie's Choice, right? So Rudin says, did you just tell Lucchese that Adam's family is a sadder version of Sophie's Choice? And I said, no. He said, why did you tell him? I, I said, I told him it was a much sadder version of Sophie's <laughs> Choice. And Rudin says, he believes you. Call him back. I said, how could he believe me? He's seen... Everyone's scared, Barry. Everyone thinks they're going to get fired. Just call them back. Hello, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld calling Gary Lucchese. One minute, please. Hello. Hi, Gary. It's Barry. Yes, I know. Hey, Gar, remember when I told you that Adam's family is like a much sadder version of Sophie's Choice? Yes, Barry. Well, here's the thing, Gar. That was like kind of a joke. It was like a joke. He goes, well, then what is it? And I go, it's actually incredibly funny. And Gary equally is willing to believe that. He goes, that's fantastic. Oh, that's such great news. So he was equally willing to believe that it was both set at one moment, sadder than Sophie's choice, <laughs> the next incredibly funny. And that's the nature of directing films. Oh, God. Everyone's it... afraid. Yeah. Oh, I hate this world. But that's hilarious. I hate um, it more. <laughs> <laughs> we could do one of your leg wrestling things to find out that you'd kill me. Uh, people at home, there's also hilarious bits about you do leg wrestling. Like, you could do it professionally, and you've beaten everybody on Earth, including Kelly Ripa, which is fabulous. Um, <clears throat> In fact, by the way, it, it, when I was on a show a year ago to promote my book, during the commercial, I 
uh, leg wrestled both Ryan Seacrest and Gelman and beat both of them as well. Yeah, Kelly wouldn't right. wrestle me again because she knew she knew she would lose. Yeah, she was humiliated. Yeah. Good. Humiliated. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kelly. Um, with uh, Adam's family values, I just have to like that. That last scene with Joan Cusack, the like, I wanted Malibu. Malibu Barbie. Barbie, Delicate, graceful. (laughs) Like, what was that like to film? You know, I'll tell you, my favorite Joan moment actually is when she's in her car and she knows Fester is about to blow up (laughs) and the entire mansion blows up and we we're looking through the windshield of Joan and she goes with tears. She goes, but officer, my husband was in that house and starts weeping and there's no cuts. It's one continuous take, which is why it's so funny. She goes from weeping to cackling to laughing out of control in this one continuous shot. Joan was brilliant. And the scene you're talking about the Malibu Barbie scene is also brilliant. The thing about directing Joan was really interesting, a little bit like working with Kathy Bates in that Joan and I did everything three different ways. Every single take, I did one, you know, she plays a serial killer. I did one take where you, where you don't see her insanity, where she played it totally flat and straight. There's one, the second take was always where she was insane, but kept it in for the most part. But occasionally you could see there's some insanity going on. And then the third take, just insane and over the top. And I was sure when we were shooting that I used primarily the flattest, less insane version. And we cut it with those first takes and it wasn't funny. Mm -hmm. And, and, And that's why I always tell people Never, ever as a director should you ever be saying, okay, good, let's just do one more. Well, one more why? One more faster, slower, angrier, sadder. You got to give some reason, but most directors will literally say, okay, one more. Why bother if you're not changing anything? So I always make radical, even if I think I have it, I'll have someone do it differently because it's the nature of the plastic fluid nature of film is you don't know until you put it all together. Another thing Didi taught me is sometimes when the third act isn't working, the problem is in the second act, not the third. Don't touch the third, fix the second and suddenly the same scenes in the third resonate. So the great thing about Joan is I just hold up a finger one, two or three and she knew flat and mean, a little bit insane or very insane. And she she would just dial herself in each take that way. And it was she's brilliant. And in fact, I worked with her again on a series of unfortunate events in the first two episodes. She plays Justice Strauss. And I just I love her. And she has such a cackly laugh. I said to Joan, you know what? Someday this was on Adam's family. I said, someday some man is going to fall in love with you because of that laugh. And it's the same reason they're going to start to hate you uh, will be that exact same laugh after 10 years. And she, <laughs> she left the cackly laugh as I was telling her that. Oh, that's so good. And also the, uh, 
what was the name of the camp that the kids got forced? Camp, uh, camp Chippewa. That's in the Adams <laughs> Family Values, uh, where Rudnick and Paul Shaman wrote those two great songs, uh, Eat Me, where yeah. Pugsley plays a turkey, and then the Happy, Happy Turkey Day, Hunger Pains Will go away as we're stealing Cape Cod Bay. It's happy Turkey day. Um, and by the way, Christine Baranski and Peter McNichol are brilliant genius in that movie playing the camp counselors. Yeah. But also when Christina Ricci is Wednesday Adams in the place, she's so sweet. And then she's like, stop, you've stolen our land. Like all it's, it is so brilliant and so funny. And uh, also it, there's a picture of uh, of the boy, the the very nebbishy like Jewish couple with the it, son. Yeah, that's me. That's based on you. Well, uh, actually, I play his father, David Crumholtz, and I I play Crumholtz's dad in that scene. And Crumholtz is playing me, the overprotected kid who says, "Do you know what happens if my mother uses fabric softener?" I die. And that makes Wednesday like fall in love with him. But they're the two outcasts, the the Jewish boy and and the you know the goth girl. And you know, she she Christina was brilliant giving that spit speech about you you drink cocktails and drive stick shifts. <laughs> she says to the white people. God, it's just such a classic film. Um I mean, my friends and I still quote it and watch it to this. It's just one of those things that you can watch over and over and still just laugh and have a great time with. Let me tell you one thing. Uh, coming out in a couple of weeks, is, it's the 30th anniversary of the release of the first Adams Family, and we have reinstalled the entire mamushka. So the scene where Raul and uh, Julia and and... Fester, Gomez and Fester dance in the ballroom has been restored to its proper length. And Raul is brilliant singing that. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. I should make that my new audition song. Be like, Mamushka, my hey and hey and hey and hey. It's so brilliant. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, Your book, it just from start to finish made me howl, made me, you know, feel so many things. It's so good. And um, your sense of humor about getting through life when life throws you really terrible things. Um, I think it's a testament to how important laughter is, a good sense of humor is. And um, I, you know, I can't wait to read it again. Um so everybody at home, go get Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. Um, it's out on paperback right now, yeah? Yeah. I, I really hope it becomes a film. It's so funny and hilarious, and I think it's something that a lot of people will relate to and um, really, really enjoy. Well, wow. What a pleasure. Well, thanks so much, Josh. That's lovely of you. Thank you, and thanks for... Uh, Thanks for all the joy that you've given the world with uh, with all your work. Um, oh. It, you know, it, it means a lot, especially like over the past horrible 19 months. You know, it's like I, I hope that people have a new appreciation for filmmaking, for theater making, for entertainment in general, because it is what gets us through. 
And um, it's, you know, I always say, like, what do we do with the hours, Mrs. Dillaway? <laughs> and, you know, it's something to do with the hours. So uh, everybody go check out the book. Thank you, Barry, for coming on. Um, I I can't wait to laugh at, at all the things that you make in the future. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for coming uh, on. Uh, what a pleasure. Thanks. And you really know your stuff. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks oh, so much. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. Well, listen, everybody, thank you for listening to the show. You can support us at patreon.com slash Josh Swallows Broadway and go get this book right now. It's more important than the vaccine. Um, all right. <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not. Maybe not. But <laughs> okay. hey. All right. Much love to you. Thanks for coming on and tune in for more Josh Swallows Broadway. Josh Swallows Broadway is produced by Alan Seals, Dory Berenstein, and myself, Josh Lehman, with associate producer Elizabeth Wheelis. And special thanks to our Patreon producers, David Rimmer and Josh Harris. You can join them. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash Josh Swallows Broadway. Leave a rating. Leave a review. I read them. This is how I continue living. Help me live. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for keeping Broadway alive and swallow you soon. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.